0: We are recording this. Okay. Um, hi. Uh, welcome to uh, Race Class in Place: The Uneven Impacts of the Housing Shortage. My name is Brian Hanlon. I'm the executive director, or the co-exec director of Carla, the California Renters Legal Advocacy and Education Fund. Uh, before we begin, I'd just like to thank everyone who donated to Carla during our uh, Giving Tuesday push. Um, you know, it's it's like especially gratifying when we receive donations in whatever amount from people who work with us, who know our work. And when I can like tie a, a face to a donation, uh, it shows how much you really value the work that Sonia, I, and the Carla board are doing. So uh, thank you uh, very much. So on to the introductions. Uh, Michael Lenz is, an, is a professor of urban planning at the UCLA Luskin School of Public Affairs. Uh, now, I'm someone who tweets a lot about housing policy and the housing literature. Uh, Michael is the guy who writes it. Uh, So I've personally hand-delivered papers uh, written by Professor Lenz to elected officials, so I'm very excited to have him uh, here tonight. Uh, Next is Kate Downing. And Kate, I just want to say, I I knew you before everyone else knew that you were cool. Uh, Before before your wonderful resignation letter from the Palo Alto Planning Commission uh, went viral, before you received global press coverage, uh, Kate's day job is as an uh, in-house attorney at a tech firm, but that's not why she's here today. Uh, aside from being a former Palo Alto Planning Commissioner, uh, Kate co-founded Palo Alto Forward, a YIMBY group in the South Bay, and is a board member of CARLA. I benefit from your counsel all the time, even when I don't always ask for it. Uh, so thank you. Tamika Moss is the Chief of Staff uh, to Oakland Mayor Libby Schaaf. She has worked for years as an affordable house- in the affordable housing world. Um, she was a Community Planning Policy Director at SPUR and as Executive Director of uh, Hope SF. And something I learned last week from attending a, a talk at Spur is that uh, Tamika was raised on a farm in Ohio, uh, which, which I, w- I would not have guessed given her passion for urban issues. So I guess the charms of rural life uh, didn't quite <laughs> stick with you. <clears throat> and uh, then we have Ben Metcalf. Uh, ben is the director of the um, California Department of Housing and Community Development, uh, formerly Deputy Assistant Secretary of the Office of Multifamily Housing Programs at HUD, and before that, a project manager at Bridge Housing. And I've got like to say, I've noticed so many good people have come a Bridge. It's, it's kind of remarkable in the San Francisco uh, Bay Area policy world uh, how many uh, good folks uh, used to work there. Uh, ben was a real fighter for Jerry Brown's uh, portable housing streamlining initiative, uh, AKA buy right Development. Now, it didn't quite go the way we wanted it to, um, but I'm confident that we'll make more progress uh, during the next new legislative session. So please welcome the panel.
1: Michael, floor is yours. All right. Okay. I'm here. Okay. So, uh, you know, so I, I like to, you know, set that up with there are a lot of good reasons why we might want to regulate land use. And we're going to continue to regulate land use in some form or another for, you know, as long as um, zoning makes, or as long as uh, cities are run anywhere close to the way they're run right now. Um, But it's important to also realize that land use regulations have, you know, have an exclusionary past and and often have an exclusionary intent. Um, So if you want to think about how uh, some of the bad reasons why we've had land use regulations in the past um, and may continue to have them uh, currently, i you know, Once we outlawed things like racial covenants and were able to explicitly delineate where people could and could not live, um, land use regulations were more and more used to uh, segregate folks um, or to perpetuate segregation. Um, and the simplest versions of these are things like minimum lot sizes or uh, single-family zoning, um, and in particular Florida area ratios, which essentially say, you know, on a given plot of land you can only have X number of units or X number of bedrooms or people uh, living, you know, in that area. Um, So what are some of the effects of these regulations? Um, uh, Not surprisingly, when, you know, uh, regulations are intended to restrict supply, they're successful at restricting the supply of housing. You know, this may matter less in some markets than, say, geographic constraints, but say you're in the Bay Area, you have lots of geographic constraints you have lots of regulatory constraints. Um, you're in trouble, and you there's one of those things you can control would be regulatory constraints. Um, what does this look like uh, in terms of um, real life uh, supply and demand? Well, um, Greg Morrow is a, a former doctoral student at UCLA. Did a wonderful dissertation looking at um, kind of the zoning capacity in Los Angeles over the years. So. 1960, Los Angeles was zoned for 10 million people. By 1990, Los Angeles was zoned for just under 4 million people. So, homeowners had uh, a lot of success in restricting the number of, um, uh, in, in down zoning essentially, and kind of restricting uh, the uh, various uses of land in Los Angeles. And um, as you can see, People still kept coming to Los Angeles um, as they continue to do, and um, we're essentially kind of at par between what Los Angeles is zoned for and how many people live there. So every additional uh, few thousand people that come there uh, puts quite a strain on the city in terms of what can be, uh, in terms of where they can be housed. Um, So, you know, I'm not a free market ideologue, but I can uh, draw a supply and demand, uh, graph, uh, pretty easily. They're not always a hundred percent predictive and, 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 uh, truth or, uh, truthful in terms of how the world works. Um, but when supply is constrained or goes down, usually price does go up, um, or at least doesn't come down. Um, and so a couple things on prices that we know pretty well, uh, uh, highly regulated areas are more volatile. So if we look at the last housing boom and bust, where places places that were highly regulated had bigger booms and bigger busts. Um, if we look at uh, just basic prices, um, in terms of high and low prices, uh, research in California certainly uh, finds particularly strong effects um, of land use restrictions on prices, and um, we have similar research nationwide. You know, I think the strongest statement in the literature is that the data suggested high and rising prices, particularly in America's coastal markets, are the result of rising demand coming together with restricted supply. That's uh, our old friend Ed Glazer and his colleague Joe Giorco. Um So where does that leave us over the years uh, in terms of uh, what I really focus in on, which is uh, housing affordability, uh, particularly for low-income households, but this... These trends are similar um, for all renters. So if you look at 1960, you know there's a benchmark that we typically use. Um, 30% of rent is, uh, if you go past that threshold, we consider you cost burdened. If you go over 50% of your income on rent, we consider you uh, severely cost burdened. Um, and so the percent of renters devoting more than 30% of their income on rent back in 1960, for all renters, that was about 23%. Um, for poor renters, more than half. Um, by the 2010s, over half of all renters are are paying more than 30 percent of their income on rent, um, and virtually, you know, the vast majority of poor renters are are spending more than 30 percent of their income on rent. Um, so this tells you that, you know, this is something that has been a, a steadily increasing problem over the years. It got worse a lot faster as a result of the Great Recession. Um, when we had, uh, you know, large decreases in income, of course, um, but rents did not drop that much because a lot of people entered the rental market as a result of foreclosures and the inability to uh, buy houses because of tight credit. So in California, this is um, kind of worse. We, of course, would expect that here in this room. Um if we look at you know, you know the, the Bay Area uh, MSA, um, you know even people with relative with middle income you know th- uh, uh, earnings are you know seventy percent of those households are spending more than thirty percent of their income on rent. Um, these you know when you look at severe cost burdens fifty percent of their income on rent um, that's that's uh, just as bad. I would assume not a lot of you know a lot of people spending only 30% of their income on rent here in San Francisco. Um, So what it comes down to is that low-income renters in particular are low on options in markets like the Bay Area. Of course, you don't have to be low-income to uh, to be particularly low low on on options. Um, Some of my research finds that nationwide, um, over three low-income households exist for a unit in in their market um, at 30% of income. Um, so there yeah this is a, is a problem nationwide that has gotten worse pretty fast um, <clears throat> so what happens when the rent is too damn high i'm not the first person to use that phrase in this room today um, and i forget the the new york guy that ran for city council or mayor or something that that guy's awesome anyway um so when the rent is too damn high Obviously, you have limited uh, resources for other necessities. But then, only certain types of of, of people can live in particular neighborhoods or cities. Um, lots of research uh, finds that land use regulations, um, you know, as you know, part of the mechanism in terms of increasing costs, um, exacerbates segregation by race. Um, the same finds that this exacerbates uh, segregation by income uh you know how this works is uh you know this can work at the neighborhood level in which you know uh folks are su- are successful at um not allowing multifamily development in those neighborhoods and then people can't afford those neighborhoods because they can't afford a single family home in those neighborhoods um that can o- that has also operated at the city level over or or, or suburban level if you will over several decades um, in which we've uh, had exclusionary um, zoning uh, type processes like that. Um, there's also research that's showing that even entire metros are less than, less attainable than they used to be for a wide diversity of, of incomes and, and occupations. So you know, your janitors, your uh, teachers, your librarians are increasingly unlikely to find places like the Bay Area uh, uh, feasible for them to, to work and live. Um, so some things that, you know, we might not just care about segregation because segregation sounds like a bad thing, um, you know, and that we kind of want people to live harmoniously, whether they're rich or poor, black or white, et cetera. Um, but it matters practically for families, right? So in tight markets, um, income more likely is more likely to determine the quality of your schools, how close you are to you know, a number of jobs, um, the safety of your neighborhood, um, as well as the socioeconomic status of your neighbors. Um, and we have quite a lot of evidence that living in, in distressed neighborhoods or not very great neighborhoods is bad for your physical and mental health, your job outcomes, um, and upward economic mobility, intergenerational mobility in particular. So... You know, kids born into you know, uh, particularly bad neighborhoods don't have great outcomes. That shouldn't be a surprise. Just one piece uh, heading towards the question of, like, what to do about this. Um, some of our research on income segregation, I'm citing um, some of the work they've done with Pablo Machina at UCLA, um, particularly finds that when land use powers are concentrated in local, uh, the hands of local decision makers um, rather than, say, state decision makers, um, income segregation is intensified. So, the process there is that that we see is that um, local homeowners are much or homeowners are much 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 more successful at capturing uh, the attention of their local uh, policymakers, um, and therefore they uh, can resist multifamily development and, and other things that uh, reduce the cost of housing. Um, <clears throat> So with that, um, that's the state of the research as I know it, and I will uh, move uh, on down the line to our esteemed panel.
2: Hello, everyone. So I'm here to talk about a very narrow subject, I think, which is the city of Palo Alto, which is only one out of more than 100 cities within the Bay Area. Um, But we get a lot of press, we get a lot of news, we get a lot of attention, and I want to talk today a little bit about why that is, and it's, it's not the reasons you may think. How did Palo Alto get to be where it is today? I think it's is, is an interesting question, because Palo Alto, um, you know, the very early history of Palo Alto is that Palo Alto was an extremely urban place. Palo Alto was a city built around the train, right? We initially were built around the Palo Alto Caltrain Station, which was developed because of Stanford, because of its nearness to Stanford. And then later Calab, which was that station was added directly because of Stanford Leland. So we were originally designed to be a grid city. We had um, you know train lines coming up and down our city streets, um, and that that was sort of the beginning of it. So you had you know your city center, which was very grid-like, and it was very much dependent on public transit. And then you had the outskirts of Palo Alto, which was mainly orchards. We grew all sorts of fruits. That's the the kind of the the initial history of Palo Alto, and then. You know, it's something you know around 1957 actually is is when Stanford Research Park was formed, um, which actually goes back much further than even I knew until I looked it up, um, which is really interesting. So today, you know, that Stanford Research Park, I mean, it has more than 23,000 jobs. I think last time I looked at it, they had 146 buildings. Um, but the reality is that it's all like low slung offices. It's all two three story buildings. So y- you can imagine how much bigger that possibly could be. So, so that just gives you an idea of how big of a space that actually is. Um, so, <laughs> you know, the funny thing is, so, so we created the Stanford Research Park, and no one, no one thought twice about housing. You know, everyone's like, oh, okay, well, they'll just live in Men- Menlo Park, and that'll be fine. And I guess for a while that was fine until it wasn't. And what you're seeing, you know, today, it's a decades-long collection of adding office space and not adding any housing. Um... And, and and I think that's this. That's the same story around the Bay Area. I mean, there's a lot of reasons for that, but I, but, but I'll, I'll just leave it there for a while. For a while, um, you know, we. Part of the focus, you know, today is sort of like the the imbalances that occur because of our housing shortage and how it affects some communities more than others. So I do want to focus a little bit about that on that. Um, you know, the reason why I think Palo in particular. Is as important and pivotal as it is, and why I've thrown my energies into Palo Alto, is because there are some things people don't know about Palo Alto. So I don't know if you know this, but Palo Alto's Caltrain station is actually the second most popular station on the entire line after Fourth and King. Great, you would think it would be the second. You'd think the second one would be the second San Francisco station, but it's not, and it's not even San Jose. It's Palo Alto. Um, Palo Alto's population actually doubles during the day. Um, so we have a population about 66,000, so we doubled during the day. That's the, the estimate by our, by our police force. Um, and so what I think is interesting about that is that if you look historically at the development of the suburbs, you look at the development of Palazzo, there's a couple things that coincide. So, so one of the things that coincides is that 1968, that's when the anti-discrimination laws were passed at the federal level. And what you see is this surprising renaissance of environmentalism and environmental zoning that comes in afterwards. And you know, a lot of it is a lot of it is real, and a lot of it is fair, and open space is good, and land preservation is good, and preventing people from being poisoned—all terrific, wonderful things. Um, but Palo Alto is special. I mean, close to 60% of our land is open space or parks. Um, environmentalist, segregationist—I don't know, right? Um, and you you see a couple of things happening at that time, right? So, so 1968, you got anti-discrimination laws passed suddenly everyone's really interested in zoning again. And then that doubles down in 1977, right, when we get rid of redlining on a federal level. And so now people are starting to get really creative about how they're going to keep people out of their neighborhoods that they don't want there. And I think we would be remiss not to mention that. Um, And then at the same time that you see um, these kind of zoning regulations come in, more open space preserves, so you know, Palo dedicates a bunch of parkland at that time. Uh, And then, of course, you see Prop 13 come in because the the zoning regulations were actually really effective at preventing housing from growing. So in in 1970, our housing price in California, 30 percent higher than the rest of the country. So just a decade later, it's 100 percent higher. So it tells you that the zoning regulations were extraordinarily effective. We were great at preventing housing from being built. Housing got extremely expensive. And that's the same time that we decide, hey, Prop 13, housing's really expensive. We don't like taxes. Let's do Prop 13. And so you're seeing all these kind of regulations interplay with each other. And I want to mention that because Palo Alto is is a great example of of how that all worked out, right? Because Palo Alto had been a majority white place when black people started moving into Palo Alto back in the 1950s. You know, there was a large community outcry against that. A lot of black people ended up in East Palo Alto, Um, you know, and Paulatans would love to tell you about how Eichler was really happy to sell to black people. That that's great, except their neighbors were really not happy. And so black people didn't actually end up living in Paulatu no matter what they tell you. Um, and that that's and so that's kind of the reality. And and Paul is kind of the, the focus for that, I think. Because you, you can see how that oj plays there so well. And then you see the effects that Paulatu's decision making has on all the neighboring cities, right? You you see that everyone else is coming in, right? Our population doubles during the day. New York City's population goes up by 7%, right? It's insane to think about how many people are driving in and cow training in and biking in to Palo Alto of all places, right, you know, you, it's not exactly a, you know, it's not a cosmopolitan Shangri-La, um, but, you, but you see that, right? Um, and, you, and then you see the diverging fortunes that that creates, right? Because obviously, if you have the jobs, if you have the office space, then suddenly you're, you know, you're getting all the revenues from all those companies. You're getting all the tax revenues from all the people who work there and who eat there and who buy things there. And then you're suddenly seeing this giant you know, gulf and divide between Palo Alto and its neighbors. And even now, you know, if you drive from Palo Alto to Menlo Park, I don't know, you may not really notice that you're leaving one city and you're going to another. But the prices, they, they, they do drop quite significantly with its neighbors. So a, a lot of the a lot of those decisions, a lot of the housing choices that went there, they're they're still there today. And then you see that you see that in particular with East Palo Alto, right? You see that, you see how little money, how little tax revenue they get in comparison because of that balance of jobs versus housing, right? Because they ended up taking up the housing load for Palo Alto without getting the benefit of those jobs. So, so what does that mean for Palazzo? What does that mean on a, on a realistic level? So, in a real, for, in a realistic level, so the, the 18 to 44 population in Palazzo has dropped precipitously. Um, it's, it's just off the cliff. Um, young people just plain don't live there unless they have kids there and they want to send them to public schools. Um, in fact, and, and even that, they're barely holding on. And just the past year alone, we lost an entire elementary school worth of kids left left Palazzo because their parents can't afford to be there anymore. Um, and so, what you're seeing is a population that is becoming much, much older and much, much wealthier. And so, you're seeing a lot of, you know, right? See, more boutiquey retail, right? You're seeing more expensive restaurants, because, you know, if you're a restaurant, why would you serve a five-dollar burger to your millionaire neighbors living in their single-family homes? Right? It makes no sense. You you change you change the clientele that you serve. Um, you know, I don't think I don't have to tell you about the two and a half million-dollar million median house now. Um, and what that means for affordability in Palo Alto, right? I'm not, I'm not even talking about it. I don't think you know. Um, but the other thing about Palo Alto is, as we're becoming richer, as we're becoming older, more than half of our population in the next 15 years is going to be senior citizens. And so far, we're doing nothing about that. And I think it's, it's really concerning, because all these people live in their single-family homes. They live many miles away from any services. And so either they're going to be 98 uh, so, so either there's going to be that, and we've already seen some of that, um, or we're going to find an entire population that becomes extraordinarily isolated, and lacking in basic services, um, as well as, you know, society. Um, and I think that's that's not just Palo Alto. I think that's a lot of communities in California, a lot of coastal communities in California. Um, so you have an entire age segment the population there that I, I think is really going to be stuck, and I think they're not really thinking about what that future is going to look for them. Look like for them when they can't get behind the wheel of a car anymore. Um, you know, I think people know that you know we can't hire city staff because apparently you can't afford a house if you only make one hundred ten thousand dollars a year. Um, we can't fill police positions. We've had seven open police positions we can't fill. And no one wants to take them. Because um, why would you, right? I mean, if you can equally go to work in Gilroy and live in Gilroy, it seems like a better bet. Um, and most importantly, we can't renew our teacher contracts. We've had a lot of teachers leave. We, they don't want to renew teacher contracts with us because they just don't want to do the commute anymore. It's just not worth it, even with the salaries that we pay, which are higher than many other areas. It, it doesn't make up for a two-hour commute when you have to be at school by, you know, six in the morning to start, you know, getting ready for kids to come in. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about Palo well Alto Forward. So so Palo well Alto Forward, you know, is it, a group of people that came together who were, you know, old-time residents, young residents, it's quite a mixture between retirees, tech workers, um, moms, parents, and, you know, you name it. I mean, most of our meetings you'll go to are actually really, really different in demographics than this one. Um, the vast majority of the people who come to our meetings have gray hair. Um, and it's usually kind of a much more you know, professional set of people. Um, but it's interesting, you know, because it's so because it is different, right? I think it's interesting. I think it's interesting because it's like when you, when you, when you, th- when I see this group of people, this all makes sense to me. I'm like, okay, I get it. You guys are just, you know, you're just entering a franchise in many, many ways. Um, but to see so many people who are much older and yet still, you know, they get it, they understand what the younger generations are going through, they understand their role in it, is really cool. And that's kind of a lot of what we get from lot of Um I'd say that the one interesting thing I would say about us, as opposed to um, you know, as a bar for Car- Carla other things like that, um, you know, we're, we've been much more focused, well, maybe not, but, but other organizations, we've been much more focused on education. So i to talk a little bit about like what we've done in terms of um, outreach. I'll skip, I'll skip forward in a minute. Um, you know, we, we've brought in a lot of experts and academics who so have talks about their papers, you have talks about their books. Um, so we're, we've been, Advocacy is obviously, obviously important. Like we still want people to come in and talk to city council, and we want people to write letters, and we want people to you know, protest or whatever. Um, but in in a community like ours, like I said, um, education means a lot, and just being able to engage with people in that kind of logical way means a lot. We've been we've been doing that for more than two and a half years now. I think that makes it a fairly unique organization um, as far as UMB organizations go. Um, we also practice somewhat of um, what we call tactical urbanism. So I don't know if you're familiar with this, but it's sort of like, you know, one day you just paint lines on the road, and that's your bike lane, right? Or you know, sometimes we'll take over um, like a parking spot in our main street, and like we decorate it, and make it into like an outdoor living room, things like that. Um, so so we have various projects to try and engage people. Um, I, I think the other thing that's kind of interesting about us as an organization is. Um, while we're focused on housing, like, we, we really believe that housing and transportation have to go together. And the complaints that come about transportation, those those, re- those are real, right? Like, the fact that we have, what is it, 23, 26 different organizations that are all doing transportation and all suck at it, um, that's, I don't know how we fix that, you know? And those complaints are legitimate. Like, those are complaints that we all have. It's not just the NIMBYs. Um and so for, from our perspective, you know, we do what we can on the transportation end. Like, uh, you, su- you know, we support bus rapid transit, we've supported bike lanes, we've supported shuttles, we've supported, like, Uber shuttles, what, whatever we can think of, uh, we really do think it's important because the reality is, like, even if we all succeed and, like, we all decide that we're going to make every single Caltrain tra- cal stop super dense and super urban, um, that's not, it's not going to be enough. That, that's not going to be enough in the way of transportation in order for, for everything to remain sustainable. Um, even though we very much wanted to. So, uh, you know, other things we focus on is parking requirements. Um, I saw, I think, the city of Oakland uh, just ease their parking requirements, um, which is a great giant win. We're trying to do the same in Palo Alto. We're having much more difficulty. But that's that's also some of the things that we work on. Um, And then I I briefly want to talk about sort of... uh, I think the things that I've that I've learned in the last two and a half years of co-founding Power Pallets Afford and how that's gone for us, which is that I, I would say this, I would say that the educational activities that we do, the engagement that, that we do with the residents, I think it's really important in terms of decision making in the sense that um, we give cover to the people who already like us. Um, that really helps give them the support and lets them know that, you know, we've got their back. Um, and, it, you know, there's a lot of people who are on these city councils that are sort of in between. They don't really know what to think. And so, you know, when you get a big turnout, that helps with those group, that group of people. Um, but it doesn't help with the NIMBYs. I mean, the reality is that the only way to deal with a NIMBY is to vote them out. Um. <laughs> uh, so I, I think that that's, I think that's really important. It's you know, forming the networks that are going to go walk door to door for, for candidates, um, who are going to host events for them, who are really going to pool and make their voices heard. Um, that's ultimately where you want to be. Um, you know, the day after election day is the day to start planning for your next election. Um, I think a lot of you already know that, but I, I want to say, I want to say one other thing, which is, you, you know, to the point that you made about the state level, um, you know, Palo Alto is a city of about 66,000 people. That's like, what, the size of the mission? Um, We killed ourselves over this last election. We succeeded in now having a pro-housing majority. Um, We got three out of four candidates are ours, um, which was great and awesome, but also we killed ourselves to do it. Uh, Nobody slept. Everyone worked all the time. People stopped doing their real jobs that they were paid for to, to make it happen. And I don't that's not sustainable. We can keep doing that every two years, um, and I think when you look across all the cities in the Bay Area, 100, 101 cities, um, who are all trying to do the same thing, boy, I just don't know that we can keep doing that. I just don't know that that's a long-term solution. Look, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not dissuading you from doing it, but I'm saying that state law plays a giant role. I'm saying that at the end of the day, we need some state laws passed that are going to support us, that are going to help us, that are going to be there no matter how nimby the city council is, because goddammit, we all need a vacation every now and then.
3: Wow, well on that note. My little remarks. No. Um, good evening, everyone. Again, my name is Tamika Moss and I serve as the chief of staff to Mayor Schaff in Oakland. And before I um, give my remarks, I'd like to just ground us in the tragedy that is happening in our city. Uh, if we could take a moment to recognize the victims and the loved ones in the entire city, and the entire country who is mourning for our city, I would appreciate that. Thank you so much. Um, I have spent the last four days uh, working on site with the families of of the victims of the fire, and this is the first non-fire related it's, uh, activity that I have done in the last four days because I believe it is that important. Um, when we talk about housing, we aren't actually just talking about housing and transportation intersections. We're talking about providing opportunities for the most vulnerable families in our cities to have thriving lives, to, to, to have full access to educational outcomes that Michael talked about, uh, that, that help break this, the cycles of multi-generational poverty, uh, to, to have access to healthy foods in their neighborhoods. This is not just a housing problem. Uh, What what we're talking about is a problem where our our communities are not whole, and it's most evidenced by our housing crisis. But I want to just ground us that we must look at this issue very comprehensively, and if we're going to actually have workable solutions that actually support our, our low-income and and now middle-income families, incomes families across the in, entire economic spectrum, I think we have to be very holistic in our thinking in terms of how we're trying to solve the issue of around affordability. I just want to say a couple of things uh, specifically about Oakland and what we are seeing uh, relative to our city and the region. Oakland is not unique, I think, Kate, what you just described in Palo Alto is very similar to what we are experiencing in Oakland. Um, the affordability uh, is increasingly challenged and quickly. We had a 35% uh, rental increase over the last four years in the city of Oakland, uh, and, and, and 11% since 20, uh, 2015. So it is happening very quickly for the city. The um, city of Oakland has been a working-class, blue-collar town, for a lot of its history, one of the most, you know, economically and culturally diverse neighborhoods or cities in the entire nation, and we've we've benefited from that uh, for quietly, and now folks are really recognizing how incredible uh, the city of Oakland is, and so the pressures on our housing market, uh, the pressures on the quality of life for residents who live in the city are are being threatened and challenged. And so what we have to do is think about how do we uh, provide opportunities for our existing residents uh, to, to stay in Oakland, to continue to call Oakland home, and also provide opportunities for people to move to our great city. Uh, we are an inclusive and progressive place where we want all to enjoy what makes our city wonderful. And so one of the, the key messages I want to send to you all tonight is about how we change our narrative. I feel like what we do in the Bay Area, particularly around our, our NIMBY friends, is borrow narratives around neighborhood preservation. Uh, you know, we got to protect uh, what we love about our places, which inherently means exclusivity. And so what we need to start thinking about is how can we do both? How can we direct our market forces to have impacts for, that are much more equitable? Uh, where we have uh strategic agendas in terms of how we you know employ our policies and our regulatory frameworks both locally and statewide and federally frankly, that forces our market to be a much more equitable uh community um and so those are some of the things that we are trying to prioritize in Oakland. you know, I worked in San Francisco for ten years before I went to work in Oakland, and one of the struggles is is the struggle around uh you know the progressives and the moderates, the supply and demand. I mean, really trivial things in in the scheme of things, frankly. But, But that has dominated the conversation for like 50 years or more. Okay. And so why can't we learn a different way of being when we are faced with opportunity, frankly, in Oakland to create an equitable housing agenda, to to create an equitable economic agenda that actually allows people across the entire economic and um, housing spectrum uh, to have opportunity in our city. So that's one message I think is important. The other I want to focus on are solutions. The city of Oakland did not raise throw our hands up and and say, "You know what Redevelopment was abolished uh you know pe- displacement is happening uh, there's nothing we can do about it. We took it into our own hands in our on on November eighth y'all okay uh Oakland and Alameda County actually had a lot of things to celebrate. We passed a six hundred million dollar bond eighty two percent of our electorate passed that bond, one hundred million dollars of that bond is dedicated to anti-displacement efforts that will preserve housing where people are today in our city, and that is tremendous. And I think it was such a testimony to how important this issue is for everybody in the city of Oakland. We also had a win with A1, which was the county bond that provided resources for new construction of affordable housing to be built across our entire uh, county. And, and those two together will be able to provide us opportunities to do some of these strategies that we believe work. One, we need to acquire the buildings so that we can add permanent affordability protections to those properties. Right now, our rent control laws in Oakland don't allow if, you know, Ben moves out and he, he had rent, rent protection, uh, the landlord can increase that rent once Ben moves out in Oakland. What we want to be able to is work with the property owner by either buying the property and working with our nonprofit uh, development community to preserve those buildings and make sure that we have permanent protections for anyone who replaces Ben in that unit. So that's one of the strategies that we're going to be utilizing with some of our anti-displacement work. The housing authority, the Oakland Housing Authority, is also a really innovative partner in trying to come up with solutions to maintain uh, our most vulnerable residents, primarily our residents of color, uh, who are challenged in this way, both the affordability of housing costs but also the affordability of uh, job security. We want to make sure that those residents have livable wage jobs where they can actually pay for rent that they can afford. And the Housing Authority has done some tremendously innovative, creative things around making sure that their subsidies transfer, not just the Section 8 subsidies, but the funds that the Housing Authority has access to, they're purchasing single-room occupancy hotels, which provide a smaller footprint um, or smaller housing type, but also provides a deeper level of affordability for our most vulnerable residents, formerly homeless residents, residents who are living um with incomes below um you know 30 to 60% area median income so what we're doing just across the entire city is trying to come up with solutions. We've engaged over 110 stakeholders through our housing cabinet process that the mayor's office put together in an effort to bring people together to look at solutions. And and frankly, many of the bond measures came out of that work. We have an equity roadmap, that policy link, which is one of the policy um, gurus in terms of equitable development um, worked with us in creating a framework of how we do all of this work with an equity lens. And so I want to just close with saying there is no silver bullet. We have got to be as creative and innovative as possible and nimble as possible. And so the YIMBYs in this room, we need you. We need you to help engage your colleagues, your peers, and everyone to have a different conversation. We can, we can no longer afford to go to our corners and you know, de, you know, define ourselves as progressives or moderates or whatever the hell you call yourself because the crisis is all of ours. And we all have a responsibility to do our best work to figure out how we solve this problem. Thank
4: you, Tamika, for your remarks, and for everybody, this uh, fantastic panel discussion. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, My name is Ben Metcalf. with the state of California. Um, I'm here tonight uh, because at a conference in March, uh, which was billed as meeting the new housing director, because I had just started, uh, we had a guess the number of houses in the glass jar at the conference, and this man on the far left gave the winning guess, so he's got the smarts, in case you have any doubt about it. Anyways, he... (laughs) His uh, winning prize was lunch with me, and then he's like, How about uh, coming to a panel I'm putting together at the end of the year? I said, Sure. I'm glad to be here. It's been a a real learning experience for me. I'm back in California now after a six year absence out in Washington. And, uh, you know, I mean, this data and my experience, I'll talk a little bit about that, but I was certainly aware of the fact that we had an affordable housing crisis going on when I left California in 2009. Uh, But it really feels like coming back now, uh, I'm looking at the sort of the the frog (laughs) that's been left in the pot as the water's gotten warmer and warmer and warmer. And sometimes I feel like folks don't fully realize that the water is actually boiling here in California in many ways as it relates to the housing situation. And, you know, coming to California from the national perspective, it's just, it's very clear that what's happening here in California is not exactly the status quo for the rest of the country. There's a lot of things going on here. And there's... You know, no silver bullet for sure, and a lot of contributing factors, uh, but the situation here really is materially different than what we see um, elsewhere in most states in the nation. So I started uh, working when I arrived um, uh, with uh, the governor. was very pleased uh, that he put out in May a uh, statement, uh, first of all, acknowledging that housing crisis, talking about you know the fact that today we have a million and a half California low-income renters paying more than half their income in rent. With all the social ills that brings with it, uh, I was very pleased to work with him on a statement also that says the solutions that we need to bring to the table are. you know got to be quite a few different things that we bring. We've got to be some that are regulatory streamlining that we've got to explore. There's got to be solutions as well that are fiscal solutions that come from the state that involve new dollars, lining up state priorities. Uh, Brian mentioned one effort uh, that was ultimately uns- unsuccessful in the buy-right area. But even then, back in May, the governor's very clear that this is a, long, a complicated issue that demands a lot of attention. And while we tried to move a few things, and some of the stuff we did move, we worked on on the housing front, I'll talk about that, was very successful. Part of the message also going back to that statement in May was we also just need to really understand and wrap our minds around all the complexity and continue to push the agenda in the years in the, in the next year and in the years beyond. Uh, There are a couple of folks uh, from my team here in the audience who have been working on uh, doing just that. We're actually going to be from the state putting out uh, our uh, statewide housing plan later this year. It's the first time since 2000 that we as an agency have tried to articulate the full breadth and scope of the affordable housing crisis in California, summarizing a lot of the research, a lot of the work uh, Michael talked about, Um, and also laying out at a very high level a policy framework um, for some of the things that we might try and do collectively, state, local, other actors, to try and tackle these problems uh, between now and 25, I'll give you a couple of sort of sneak peeks of that data just to ground you kind of what I've learned, what we're learning in terms of what the research is showing. One of the big findings, in addition to just the fact that, you know, uh, our sort of effective housing burdens have risen so, so much, so many people are now increasingly affected at all levels of income is that um, a lot of this can certainly be attributed back to a lack of supply. We have in California, as a state law, uh, a very actually progressive policy that requires that uh, regions uh, plan for all the growth that we expect them to have through new household formation and in-migration and uh, job growth. Uh, Those regions that some of you are familiar with then allocate those targets down to local jurisdictions And then we require that those local jurisdictions plan for, that their zoning provides, for that housing to get built. And not just a single number, it's actually broken up into four different types of housing targets that are intended to accommodate folks at different income levels. Uh, The good news is uh, that that process actually has been very successful. And we've seen just our compliance rate in terms of the number of jurisdictions that go through that planning exercise go up markedly over the last 10 to 20 years. Uh, We now today are sporting a 90% compliance rate in terms of the jurisdictions that actually go through that paper exercise. But, and you know, a few of you might guess where this is going, what the data shows is that although jurisdictions are planning on paper for for the zoning and the growth that they know they need to uh, accommodate, uh, the disconnect is it doesn't actually happen. Statewide, we see uh, only about 46% of the new units that we were projected for in the last cycle we're actually brought online. We're actually permanent. Um, and although we see uh, sometimes some jurisdictions occasionally being able to uh, meet the mark in terms of their highest level of the income, their market, their market rate share, uh, virtually no city in California today is providing enough at the anywhere near enough at the lower income, lower income levels. We, as part of the the research that we're going to be doing um, and putting this out, we will also be putting out a survey to every jurisdiction in the state of California, actually asking them uh, to uh, quantify some of the regulatory barriers that they have in place that might be contributing to this, uh, hoping to get a little bit more precision from the data in terms of the things that we think are correlating with uh, land use decisions that are leading to lower supply. Um, but we, uh, you know, I think what all of our research shows is that the, the, this lack of supply, um, and particularly lack of supply at lower income levels, but it's true all, all, all up and down the spectrum, is, uh, is having um, the consequence of increasing the degree, as Michael said, of, sort of segregation by income, segregation by race. That what we're seeing historically does seem to be that sort of wealthier communities are getting wealthier, poorer communities are getting poorer. It's a true statement, although we forget about it sometimes that we think of California as a very, very booming economy that boom is not felt equally. And in fact, the numbers of neighbor, number of neighborhoods that concentrate poverty have grown in California over the last 10 years, they have not dropped, even while a, a huge amount of wealth has been created, a lot of GDP has been created. Now the good the good news is, I guess, uh, here, there is certainly some, I think, legislative appetite to take on some of this at the state level. I think I discovered in the work that I was in this past session that the politics are fraught, just like they're fraught at the local level, they're fraught at the state level. Uh, that a lot of different folks bring a lot of different views to the table, even as they all nod their heads in agreement that there's a the housing problem. What we tend to see in Sacramento is a lot of small ball solutions. There were uh, 42 bills by my count, or my team's count, that actually uh, tackled housing issues and were passed into law by the state leg- legislature and went to the governor's desk. He signed, I think, all but one or all but two of those. Sounds like a lot, but a lot of those bills were were, were very uh, ministerial, very sort of modest in their scope because they were sort of in the realm of the politically possible. There were a few pieces of legislation that I think were were much more ambitious and are are much more promising for what the future might hold. Um, You know, funding opportunities, particularly when they don't hit the state's general fund are a big win. We have a $2 billion bond for homeless. But there are also occasionally these other sort of windows of opportunity that maybe you don't quite notice until you're already working on. And I think one of the big ones this past session was around accessory dwelling units. <clears throat> we had a cluster of bills that uh, uh, collectively uh, make it much, much, much more easy for homeowners to actually go ahead and do simple things like modify their home to create a second unit, to convert a garage uh, for a dwelling unit for an in-law. Uh, that strip away some of the very high fees that jurisdictions were, were charging for hookups and water, that strip away some of the owner's parking obligations that are making it functionally impossible to do that, and sort of acknowledge that we have this space in our communities in the family communities that we can be using much more effectively without really impacting neighborhood character if we could get uh, local jurisdictions to sometimes step aside on these very owner's restrictions. I think that that's a perfect example of a bill that really sort of hit the sweet spot in terms of uh, the politics of what's possible, um, and will have a long and lasting effect in terms of really facilitating a lot of sort of organic and invisible invisible density of organic supply. But that's not to say that we shouldn't uh, continue to contemplate and look at uh, sort of very big and ambitious plans as well. Uh, I do know, um, you know, there is a, a thought that with a supermajority now in the Assembly and the Senate, there may be some things that can get done uh, with that Democratic majority that couldn't have gotten done last year. Uh, I do know that the the concerns around affordable housing have only become more pronounced as we go into this next legislative session. Uh, We have seen just yesterday the Senate uh, leadership uh, put out a big package that included some major investments in housing. Uh, We expect that there will be um, a package of bills that will likely come out from the Assembly leadership as well that will include a combination of probably money as well as some streamlining efforts. And I think in all likelihood, we will be right back in next session in terms of having a lot of these kinds of conversations about where can we make some progress and make it easier to address some of the challenges we see in California. But, look, I think a lot of this does hinge on the work that happens at the grassroots. A lot of this hinges on the message that comes up to to elected officials from their constituents. I think that what we're hearing tonight, in some sense, is a story of kind of two Californias, if you will. One in which we stick with sort of the status quo where some of these very insidious patterns of poverty and, and segregation, uh, inability for uh, uh, constrained job growth and opportunity. And another, I think that is more like what we see uh, outside of California, frankly, even in places like some of our neighbors to the north where, uh, which have been more successful, I think, in terms of threatening the needle, places like Seattle uh, in terms of getting more, more supply. Or even arguably like California was in the past. Um, We saw that great chart of Los Angeles showing the zoning that LA used to have in California in the 70s, 80s, uh, was building something like 200,000 units a year. Today and and over the last decade, we've been building more like 80,000 units a year. Uh, We think we need to be at about 180,000 units a year to be able to be meeting the target. So really, in some sense, if we could just go back to where we were 20 years ago, production, we'd be making great progress. So I think there is a path forward there if we can find the political will, but I'm struck by the fact that we need to be collectively much smarter on just the way that we talk about the story and the narrative. There's been great polling that shows at its most basic level that if you walk and grab, you know, the man or woman on the street and you say to them, hey, would you mind if somebody built a multifamily building uh, uh, down the block, uh, they're going to say, uh, no, thank you, I'd rather not. I don't, I'm worried about what that'll do for my own uh, uh, home costs. And that's true not just if you're an owner, but even if you're a renter there's sort of a natural aversion to putting new supply in marketplace. But if you shift the question and you ask, as the polling has shown, you know, do you believe that we should provide an opportunity for lower income folks to access this neighborhood? Do you believe that we should provide an opportunity for your own kids to be able to continue to live in this community? Should we have an opportunity? Then all of a sudden the polling data completely flips and everybody says, heck yeah, let's build that multifamily <laughs> building down the block. So I, I think a lot of this hinges on how we tell our story and how we communicate uh, what needs to happen with uh, our, our, our elected officials of the local and the state level.
0: All right. Well, thank you very much. <clears throat> so I have a few questions for the panel. Um, uh, Professor Lenz, correct me if I'm mischaracterizing your research here, but uh, I believe that uh, you and your colleague Pablo McClinnan also found that in jurisdictions where multiple agencies had to approve um, housing uh, projects, uh, the, the, the result was increased economic segregation. So, if your circulation committee and your planning commission, and your TPS report committee, or like whatever, are all having to, you know, okay this and you have multiple veto points, you're, you're increasing the segregation. And yet, many, um, you know, uh, nonprofit housing advocates, uh, many advocates for low income communities believe this is how they get what they want, believe this is where they can organize. And they're very fearful that if they give up any of this sort of hard fought process, that they've won over the decades in California, um, that they'll be all the worse off. Um, the, the memories of redevelopment, the, the, the battle of redevelopment, of, of urban renewal, are all too real in these communities. And, you know, not in these words, I, you know, these folks were screwed by the government, you know, um, and so if, especially people like me, a bunch of wonky white technocrats, you want to say, hey, I know, I've got the housing solution for you, like I know what's gonna fix this problem, well, they're right to be suspicious. Uh, so, you know, how do we, you know, bridge that divide? How do we, uh, you know, uh, both, you know, allay the fears and recognize that they do have a valuable role to play in the political process, um, but also recognize that if we allow too many people to say no at too many stages, then we just get a bad result.
1: Just, you know, thinking specifically about you know the first piece of your question. Um, you know, I think it's good that we're collecting more data, um, as has been uh, pointed to, on, you know, what uh, the regulatory processes are in, in jurisdictions in California in particular. We need more data on that nationwide. Um, so that said, I think that we, you know, I think the more venues you have, um you know, does pre- present problems in terms of getting things approved, right? Um, the other piece of that is that the loudest voices and the mo- well, the most successfully, the most typically listened to voices are the ones that are saying no. Um, and I fight, you know, I-, I battle, I have battles in my head about this. So, like, do is is the solution to reduce, is, is to reduce voice overall, um, is the solution to, I think the solution is to find a way to equalize that, right? So, right now, you know, communities of color, low-income communities, et cetera, they have very little voice in how, in what is built in their neighborhoods compared to higher-income communities, um, uh, communities uh, predominantly white. And so what do we do do we do we reduce the voice in the higher income communities or do we and while while you know increasing voice um in lower income communities um i don't know you know to me it's like some something's got to one's got to go up one's got to go down um i don't know how much i don't know what the right balance of that is um you know so I, i I struggle with that, I, and and you know you never want to be less democratic, right? Um, <laughs> or, or at least seen that way. Um, <laughs> so I do worry about that. I, I mean, I wish we I wish we had the you know special solution in increasing voice for lower communities. But if we can't do that, do we need to damp down um, the other side, right? Um,
3: I I just wanted to add. I mean, I, I think. Um, Part of the challenge is that we create a paradigm of false choice, like you have to do this versus that. And I think what we need to do is break that down. In fact, low-income families, actually, particularly in Oakland, are quite organized. Um, there are a lot of advocacy groups that support these individuals in a really powerful way. It's really difficult for us as the city, though, to understand why all of a sudden, all of a sudden public servants like me have become the man because I work for the government. I mean somehow I lost my and let me tell you something I lost my community card. I've been working in this work for 20 years and all of a sudden it was me and the advocate and I'm advocating for the family to get the money too and all of a sudden it's my it's the government's fault why they're not successful. So I think we got to figure out how to break down that paradigm and and create a different narrative that helps us find common ground about what we're fighting for. It's really easy for us to fight against our own interests, particularly in in uh, a city like Oakland, which is its its roots are based in advocacy and activism. And so that fight and struggle is real, and and the gains um, are are significant. And what we have to create is that. What we lose by saying no is actually lost regardless if, if you say no or yes. Because in a while, and my prediction, frankly, and some have heard me say this, in the next three to seven years in Oakland, there won't be a choice for maintaining the you know the cultural and, and, and economic diversity that that city has benefited from. Because the market forces and all the things that are at play that... This panel has talked about will overtake uh, Oakland because it is s- situated in the region to be the place of growth. And so that's some of the conversation that I have with our activists and with our residents, low-income families who don't have time to come to the meetings. They're, they're working three jobs. And so their advocates, their proxies are coming and telling me something that they believe is what the family wants, but they're already uh, controlling the narrative. And I'd like to have a different conversation with those individual families about a win-win solution. Yeah, Thank you. And I I, I think you're exactly right. I I lived in the mission
0: for six years and I got started in housing advocacy by doing anti-eviction defense work for my neighbors. Um, That was my, you know, before I became a YIMBY, I was going to anti-eviction protest uh, with all the other uh, mission anarchists. And one of the, the things that I really, that really struck me though is that most of the leaders of the anti-eviction movement, like most of the people who were doing this uh, full-time, they were just ideologically opposed to any sort of solution that included more of my favorite housing. Yet, when I had one-on-one conversations with the you know ordinary people who, who were not professional activists, they, they had much more open minds. They were like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. That, that's reasonable. And I think that that's part of the problem that uh, we've had is, well, again... It makes sense to be suspicious of people like me, um, and so you know if these other folks, if they've helped them with the other things, you know, tangential from, from housing the past, it makes sense for, for them to trust them. Um, and so it strikes me, you know, this is a problem that we've really got to wrestle with. Like, how do we, you know, uh, c- communicate with people who, you know, we want to be advocates for, or we want to empower them to be advocates for themselves, um, while recognizing that a lot of the professional advocacy class you know, is going to be hard to reach. Question, and you, I think, Tamika, you brought it up that, you know, Oakland really needs to start getting this right now. Um, as, you know, the, 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 the time frame is closing where Oakland is going to be able to maintain so much of what makes o- Oakland great. But I'd push back a little bit and say it's not just market forces that are doing it. They're political forces by neighboring jurisdictions. And so, you know, Kate did a really great job, you know, of describing how... Palo Alto's policies are harming low-income and middle-income Palo Altos and displacing them, displacing their uh, public uh, sector employees, um, are you know depriving East Palo Alto of, of a tax revenue. And I know Kate and I have a conversation about all the other historical inequities and current inequities in East Palo Alto, water, I mean, among many others. Right, But let's be honest here. You know, Palo Alto is screwing Oakland right now. I mean, you know, Palo Alto and Cupertino... And many of these small South Bay communities and San Francisco that are having huge high-wage job growth and are saying no to their share of housing, well, Oakland historically underinvested, a bunch of empty lots, great transit, sure it makes sense. Um, But so much of that displacement problem is, in my view, a direct result of political decisions made in neighboring jurisdictions. So my question for you and for anyone on the panel is, how, how do you solve that problem? You know, how do you go to, you know, do you take busloads of Oakland residents down to a Palo Alto Planning Commission meeting?
5: Yes,
0: please! Awesome. I'm I'm glad about that. But, you know, so what do we do about this? Because when we have 101 different jurisdictions for one regional economy, job, and housing market, you know, solving these problems becomes very uh, challenging.
3: Well, I'll, I'll start, but I'd, I'd love to hear what, what Ben has to say about this because, you know, I'm looking at my state friends. And, um, and you know, l- local jurisdictions, as I said earlier, uh, you know, are trying to go it, al- go it alone in some ways in terms of being responsive to our, our direct constituents. Um, and and so I think you're right that we are um, – it's a confluence of pressures, um, that are happening all at the same time some market but but the political piece is really important because one of the things that we're trying to drive and mayor Schaff feels very strongly about this is that this is a regional crisis we have really tried to work with mayor lee here in san francisco with mayor Licardo and san jose particularly around an urban agenda so you know again michael talked about sort of density and the suburban struggle of you know if we don't have a baseline of understanding that our cities need to be more urbanized, I mean, Oakland has 415,000 residents and it's 68 square miles. We got a lot of opportunity for growth, right? So unless we are more thoughtful about how we are adaptively re- adaptively reusing our, our our spaces, how we are getting comfortable with more than five story stick frame, I mean, there are things that we have to start to get really thoughtful about into tiny homes, the the secondary units. Our council passed that. We declared a homelessness emergency because the encampments are coming. Oakland didn't have to ever who go. Listen,
5: y'all,
3: y'all know okay, who's been to Oakland, okay, so you know you got a highway you there's no density uh, center uh, in Oakland for our homeless folks who have who who are ending up on our streets to get so there's no cluster of services, so it's never been a problem a significant problem for the city of Oakland. And our encampments have grown exponentially. And this is an issue across the region and across the country. So I think the political will we're trying to um, assemble is a regional focus. We're trying to figure out an urban agenda that can get some of our smaller cities comfortable. Okay? Uh, Let's not talk about people. (laughs) I'm mad at Piedmont. No, um, I think MTC and other regional agencies are 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 also starting to have different political conversations with their leaders around this nexus between transportation and housing. It's new to them, um, but they are starting to be much more thoughtful. The Plan Bay Area, which is sort of what uh, MTC did to start to help ABAG and other jurisdictions think a little bit more thoughtfully about how can you urban, you know, density is not your enemy. Um, and so you go small, but you, you do need to grow. So I think that there is some political synergy, but, but it is going to take a much more, um, you know, sort of strategic effort to get some of our our uh, politicians and others on board.
4: I think there's something, there's an equity argument to be talked about here that cities, small cities should sort of carry their share of affordable housing, for example. And I think inherent in the uh, housing state housing law, uh, housing element law is a notion that every city ought to at least do something towards uh, their share of long-term housing and uh, their share of the region's supply. But the state law has never been very prescriptive about how big that share needs to be. And so in practice, some jurisdictions have very uh, trivial amounts that they they plan for Mm -hmm. and even less that they build. I I think, though, that That The other way to think about it, besides an equity frame, um, that has a lot of traction right now from the state level perspective is actually a climate frame. We we have uh, just passed in the law Senate Bill 32, which um, sort of doubled down on our state's climate goals, pushes us to a much more ambitious target, 40% reduction in GSGs from 1990 levels. And it will inevitably drive us, if we are successful in, in that goal, in really changing, not just the way we're planning or not just some of the equity but really literally in terms of making sure that we're changing our patterns of land use to get to denser developments, and more infill denser developments that have a, a very significant degree of, co- correlated with a much higher degree of GHG emissions. And I think if you look at what ABAG, the Metropolitan Transportation Commission here in Bay Area have done it, with their plan Bay Area, it is that in some sense. They have said sort of two jurisdictions, 101 jurisdictions, yeah, tell us show us where we have these places where we can really, from a planning perspective, throw everything we've got at them. And uh, you know, there has been a regional planning process and prior priority development areas all uh, all around the Bay Area where sort of all the regional planners have said, Yeah, these are the places where we need to sort of double down and have much, much denser communities because they are approximate to jobs, because they're close to transit infrastructure. And maybe it's not fair and like Piedmont think, probably has in PDAs, probably. Uh uh so maybe it's not fair, but it's but it, it could be quite successful in terms of just actually trying to get the growth to happen. And I think with the imperative of climate change and, and, and remember that with SB three seventy five, for example, the climate change bill, we've lined up our housing planning cycle with our transportation cycle. You know, remember that you know we are in Sacramento uh, working hard this session to come up with a big transportation funding bill. I think that these things get linked and uh Funds that flow from the states, decisions that get made in the regional level about things like transit are going to have to be intimately tied with where the development and the density happens. And uh, I think that gives us an inroad back into how we push our jurisdictions. It's true, actually, with the state of the state, support of the state, but really at the regional level where we say this is where we need
5: to go as a region.
0: Okay, so you know, I could ask questions all night, but I really want to open this up to audience questions. So let me see. All right, uh, let's go we got one wavy hand there, and then we'll do Kyle, and then then Ian, and then you. back The honest answer is, sure, um, just if if anyone heard it. So the question is, is the buy-right bill that Jerry Brown issued, uh, proposed last year, or earlier this year, is it coming back this session? Uh,
4: So uh, I understand it is coming back, um, not necessarily by the governor. The governor will release his budget in January, and he actually uh, is still in the process of figuring out what will go into that. Uh, but Assemblymember Bloom out of Los Angeles has said publicly he is reintroducing his uh, buy-right bill that focuses on housing element-designated sites with an affordable component, um, and we'll continue to push it um, there. So I, I think that's very much in play. But I would to make a center just right. There is no silver bullet here. I think there are a number of different things that we need to be thinking about uh, and reflecting on that can be put back into play that, that can help regular streamlining. And frankly, even if buy-right isn't taken up at the state level, that's not to say the local jurisdictions can't do it. Uh, you know, I think there are great
5: examples,
4: (laughs) you know, you say that, but I think there are great examples of cities that have done this. I mean, I, uh, Redwood City, Fresno, Sacramento, I mean, there are many places that have actually figured out how to triangulate the political (laughs) knot and say, no, we need to prioritize our growth here. Yes, we know what we, we can plan for what we need. We're going to invest on the front end and do really robust planning, and that'll allow us to back off on some of the Micromanagement of the projects on the back end. I think that is basically the American Planning Association. I said it's a, basically a best practice, right, in terms of how local planning should get done. And I think what we saw, what we see in Sacramento sometimes is the state compensating for, for local jurisdictions' inability sometimes to be able to do, do some of what we see a best practice. I think such as rolling units is the same example.
6: Okay. Um, so a couple of you touched on this a little bit, but it, it, it sort of feels like. Uh, you know, what's going on in California, what's going on especially in Northern California is sort of qualitatively, maybe quantitatively different than what's happened in other places in the past. Uh, you know, g- gentrification is a very loaded word, but for lack of a better one, it's what I'll use. It feels like we're essentially gentrifying an entire metro area of 8 million people uh, where there's going, you know, historically there have been communities um, and places for people of lower income, for, for, for marginalized people uh, that, that are being completely evaporated you know, across the entire metro, And I think that is sort of, that's sort of a new thing we haven't seen before. Uh, so, so I, am sort of curious whether, uh, whether this is something that's happened before and, and, if like there's historical pressing for this and if not, um, like where, where you sort of see things going.
1: Um, I'll take this. I think a lot of what I do is look at history, I think. So I was, this short answer is no, not in the United States. Um, you know certainly um you know we we uh, you know, the 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 hist- the arc of urban life in the united states you know we're at a renaissance period in some metropolitan areas certainly not all um we're at a renaissance period in central cities again in some central cities and some metropolitan areas um after a whole lot of downturn um, in, in a lot of uh, metros and a lot of central cities, um, and now I, I don't think we've seen the kind of rapid income growth. Of course, that the tech sector um, that ha, you know is, has largely brought, has largely been responsible for bringing around here, um, coupled with um, you know d- demand for for city living um, that I, I think is. I think, overblown in some journalistic circles, but certainly accurate in, in San Francisco, Oakland, um, other parts of the Bay. Um, so I think those two things coming together, certainly, and, you, and I think you've done a really interesting job of you know, putting your finger on what that means, right? It's like, you know, this is a larger scale, um, rise, uh, larger scale rise in prices and, la- and lack of opportunity for people... That are not a means to, you know, consume this city in the way uh, that uh, they have in the past. That said, large, uh, you know, Manhattan is uh, in, in in New York, and large parts of Brooklyn, parts of Queens, are you know kind of similar. But that's also contemporaneous with what we see here. It's not something that we can look at historical. Um, where do I see that going? I think. One thing that, that the literature, that, that, that our research on gentrification, you said is a loaded word, I would agree, um, but I think we all have, you know, most of us have some, some kind of understanding of what that means, um, shows that displacement doesn't happen as much as we might fear, right? So when neighborhoods rise in price, um, you know, we don't see the level of displacement. We don't see the out-migration of low-income households as much as people fear and think. Um, what we probably see is those people pay a whole lot more to live there, and they pay, as their neighborhood improves, whatever that mean might mean, they tend to pay more to live there. That's not necessarily a great outcome either. Um, I would think you're going to see a lot of that, and you're already seeing a lot of that um, in the Bay Area. Um, so... Where I see it going, you know, again, where I see it going, it depends on, you know, whether we're successful in, you know, helping to move the housing market along. Um, So, I I don't have a crystal ball on that, but, you know.
2: I I actually think that it's kind of a part of a global pattern. I I think it is the knowledge economy. I think everyone thought, you know, we're going to have computers and we're going to have internet and everyone can do everything virtually and basically we don't need to ever put on pants again. Um, And that turned out not to be reality. Um, It turned out that, well, actually, if you're doing a knowledge economy and everything you do is abstract and virtual, it's actually really useful to be in the same room with each other. And whiteboards become way more valuable than we ever thought they could possibly be. I think the difference between... You know, this isn't the first time we've had, you know, uh, an economic revolution that drives people into cities, right? I mean, that was the original Industrial Revolution. I mean, that also drove people to cities. It drove people to manufacturing centers. I think the difference is... We are at a much more sophisticated form of government and a much more sophisticated form of policing, and what I mean by that is that if before you came to a rural area and you couldn't find a place to live in an urban area, you pitched a tent and it was fine. Um, You know the the history of you know favelas, barrios, shanty towns, you know tenements, uh, you know people sharing rooms. Right? I mean, it's a long, deep history in the United States and really across the world. Um, but what you're seeing is we're so sophisticated now, we found a way to get rid of them all, right? And we have these great police forces that we've armed to the teeth, you know, that come and get you if you try and do that. And I think that's the difference. The difference is we're so sophisticated now that you can't bake up that housing, you know? You can't just pitch that tent. And I think I think that's what you're really seeing, that why it's different this time around from the other, way, from the other times that people have been driven to live in the cities. Um, and I honestly, the future, the future is that China is going to win. I mean, that's the future. I mean, think about it, right? I mean, I it, they, I, I, they might already be winning. But I mean,
5: you,
2: look, you think, you think about income inequality in the United States and everyone's always, you, you know, the, 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 the well, you know, the parlance has been, you know, let's put the coal workers back to work. But the parlance really should be, how do we get them a bus ticket to a city that has jobs for them? You know, instead of trying to create jobs in rural areas where they're really not going to grow because they just don't have the density to support them. Um, And we're not having that conversation for the rest of the country, right? We're talking about, you know, we're talking about gentrification in cities, but we're kind of not talking about what's happening in the rural areas that could really actually benefit from density just as much as we can.
3: Um, I just wanted to add just a, a piece to this question, which I think is, what we're also seeing in California is demographic shifts. Uh, California is actually becoming much more brown, and in fact, it will be majority a brown state by 2040. And so Angela Blackwell and Manu, uh, Manuel Pastor talk a lot about this is an economic, this, we're not appealing to people's altruistic uh, investment in equity. Uh, we actually are talking about how we're going to skill an entire labor market that will be black and brown people in the next 15 to 20 years, and how do we get them in competitive opportunities that allow them to to get a piece of the action. And so it's not just about you know the trends on the sides that, that these folks are talking about, but it's also we have to skill up the folks who are here and growing as opposed to working on from the top to make sure that prices and others are at levels of affordability. But I just want to, I wanted to highlight that because I actually think that's a real opportunity if we are being strategic about ways that we are increasing folks' household incomes, as well as skilling up opportunities for folks to become homeowners. You know, the Bay Area is actually a renter's market. And yet we know that assets and wealth is often in the in, in owning land. And so how do we get our marginalized communities to begin to compete and have access to those types of opportunities? So I think that that's also something that we're seeing. So the, the, uh, the question is, what can the
0: state do to make the University of California system house its students? Is there anything that HCD
4: can do? We have no current plans to shame the University of California, no. <laughs> Would you consider changing your, your plans?
5: Um,
4: yeah, I mean, it's tough. I don't, uh, you know, I, I think the vision of a, you know, I think this is true for any large employer. I mean, it, it comes down to a certain point of what is our vision for what employers should be obligated to do? I mean, we're talking about students, but I think the same argument we made for large employers. Do we expect that, um, you know, employers should build workforce housing? Do we expect that universities should, should build dormitories? I think there's a space where that can happen, but I also think that, uh, you know, I, ideally we have universities and employers that are integrated into the communities in which they live and housing happens uh, to support. Um, so uh, I think there's uh, probably opportunities abound in terms of, like, looking at surplus land that's owned by universities that you can look at to redevelop more intensively, um, but I can't offer you any specifics, uh, specific ideas at this time.
0: So so just to to repeat it super quickly for those on the recording, like the the question is, after the tragedy of the the, um, Ghost Ship fire, where many people have now received eviction notices that are living in um, unpermitted and maybe in some cases unsafe buildings, um, how do we provide uh, housing uh, for those those folks? Does this include uh, uh, legalizing or even not legalizing permitting people to stay in uh, warehouse spaces?
3: Well, I, I think that that's a, a really important question, and, and again, I, I'm sorry for your loss. Um, I think that the, that is absolutely on the table. Part of what we're trying to do in the, as we turn from the recovery efforts is to really be thoughtful about we don't want folks in any place in, in our city or in this country to choose safety over affordability. Uh, where they are putting themselves at risk because there aren't uh, the the requirements of fire safety and other code regulations in places uh, so that they can afford to be in their city, so that they can have their creative voice uh, that Oakland is known for. And so we don't want folks to be forced into that choice. So that is absolutely one of the things that we're going to be looking at in the days and weeks ahead in terms of, you know, what's the universe of warehouses that are actually being used at this space? Mix use uh, is absolutely an option. I think part of what we want to do is help people come out of the shadows safely so that you know our property owners are not issuing eviction notice. we've We've heard that anecdotally from folks, and yet we, unless folks are reporting and communicating directly with the city, it's really difficult for us to know, who and where those buildings are, what's actually happening for the residents, um, you know, what their needs are. You know, sometimes it might not be a, a huge conversion, right? It may just need to be, you know, some ratification to the space. And so we definitely are looking at, you know, amnesty and support for both the, the folks who are living in these buildings, but also for the landlords to not, um, you know, not comply. Uh, with the the requirements because they are trying to help residents stay in in Oakland. We want to be able to do both, and frankly, I think we can. And as I said earlier, you know, there are not a lot of cities in the United States that have done this well. Um, That's part of the problem. Uh, And something that Ben said earlier that I think makes a lot of sense is that we need to have a different standard of being. We need to have our property owners being different. We need to have our businesses being different. Our citizens have to be different. We are in different times and we can't apply our old strategies and thinking to to the new issues of today. And so I that is absolutely on the table with for us and I would love to talk to you after to make sure that we get your folks and you involved in that discussion.
0: Okay, so we just have time for a couple more questions. Um, Okay. The is Prop 13 is the devil. How do we reform it?
2: I don't know that I necessarily have a practical answer, but personally I, I like the approaches that people suggest wherein if you can't afford to pay your property tax in that year, you can just defer it to the time at which you sell the house and then pay the property taxes back then. I like that. I think that's a fair system. I don't know how practical that is, though. Texas does it, I'm hearing from the audience. No one wants to touch a third rail, okay?
0: <laughs> what about the director of a state agency? How would you like to be instantly unpopular? No comment.
4: I, I, I think there, there, there's a lot of chatter about tinkering around uh, the margins on this, and I think there's a lot of appetite to try and do some stuff. I think we see that, you know, November 8th, we saw Californians in large numbers stepping up to vote for major tax measures, extending the millionaire's tax, the school bond measure. You know, I think there there is certainly an opportunity to do stuff, but don't you know? Don't don't lose sight of the fact that it's very hard for homeowners in California to give up what they've enjoyed. I think uh, I, I think wholesale repeal of Prop 13 is an elusive target, um, uh, but I do think we have to figure out ways to compensate for some of the fiscal distortion that happens. And I think there are opportunities to do that that are within, in the realm of the possible.
3: Costa Hawkins is also a problem.
4: So briefly, the question
0: in the in the Bay Area and for most of California, we are various different shades of blue, and our disagreements over Lenny's policies, um, so, you know, sometimes uh, uh, make us forget that. How do we respond to the Trump uh, presidency? How do we uh, unite around this? And how do we become an inclusive community for refugees from Trump's America who do not feel safe where they are and are looking to the Bay Area as a safe uh, refuge? Yeah, and how can like the Yimby pro-growth movement actually, um, you know, start speaking in, in these terms as well?
3: Well, I I I know I was like, um, I I guess I, I might do a little bit of out of my official capacity comment here uh, b- because. Um, You know, I actually think that there is a lot of opportunity here. You know, California is the fifth or sixth largest economy in the world. And I think that there is something to be said of being able to respond to a Trump administration economically. And I think if we are able to be strategic in a pro-growth movement that actually provides growth across the economic spectrum, where everyone can participate, where our most vulnerable residents are not just, you know, demonstrating in our streets because they're pissed off because they've been left out, but we've actually created opportunities for them to participate, that we've created inroads for opportunity, starting with our babies. Uh, you know, somebody mentioned education earlier. Our educational system is one of the most segregated systems in America, but beside prisons, which we often know is a pipeline, right? So... How do we kind of look strategically at, again, finding a, just a couple? It don't have to be a whole lot. I think that there are just a couple of things that we can find consensus on that the pro-growth movement has actually thought about already. And, and then using some of our more blue allies to help us influence the narrative in their own communities and networks. So that's part of how I think about it. You know, there was even a, a moment when I was in my dark day it was like the ninth, and I was like, ooh, what if all the women that I know just in my life um, decided not to purchase anything for thanks- for Christmas, right? Like what kind of, how could the uh, economic impact show up in real time against a, an, a, 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 an administration that is not inclusive? So those are some of the things that I've been thinking about the question.
0: Uh, instead of just uh, waiting for a miracle from the state or trying to focus all of our energies organizing there, uh, how do uh, local cities put pressure on other cities in their uh, regions in, in order to build more housing?
2: Uh, well, you could take a queue from San Jose and you can sue, right? I mean, San, San Jose is su- literally suing Cupertino under CEQA um, because San Jose is a neighboring jurisdiction and should be taken into account under CEQA law. So that's one option. Um, I've heard that uh, attempting to annex a city is kind of threatening, too. So that might be a little <laughs> my bond to consider. But I'd really like that to be like quite disparate. Like San Jose declares they're gonna come get Piedmont. That I'd like <laughs> to see that one. Um but I think, I think part of it is what I know that some of the people in the room are already doing, right? Like, I was at the Brisbane hearings. I saw many of you there. I think that's the right way to go. I think when cities continually see lots of people show up who aren't from their city, like, there's only so long you can keep complaining about sort of foreigners being in your city, right? I mean, it gets old after a while, right? At some point, you're just like, okay, fine. Okay, let's hear what you have to say. Um, and if enough of that happens often enough, then... It's not unique or interesting, but you actually have to listen to those people because they're there and they're taking up your time. And I think that if we did that more often, I think it would be really successful. I mean, I have you know, I have some friends who are in East Palo Alto, and I tell them all the time, like, every time we have a housing project in Palo Alto, you guys should come. Because if they don't build it, they're moving into East Palo Alto. Like, this, is, this is, affects you directly. Um, and so I really wish that, you know... our our yimby bonds grow stronger um, between our jurisdictions and that we really come and help each other out when we're having these hearings. And and I know there's kind of a tendency to say, well, they don't really want to listen to people who don't live here. You really have to tell them what district you live in and all this other stuff. But that's only true for so long. At some point, you're going to overwhelm them. They're going to have to listen.
3: And I I know we're wrapping. I was just going to offer a more collaborative spirit approach. Um... (laughs) Which we, which we actually saw work in Oakland or in Alameda County, which was around A1. What we did was we found common ground around the, the cities in Alameda County who had something to gain and was losing something by not figuring out how to develop more affordable housing our Central Valley folks, Fremont, folks that ain't built a piece of affordable housing in about ever, uh, were able to come together and we passed that bond 72% and it required a two thirds vote. So I think that there are some examples of again, finding a, a baseline that might uh, resonate with more folk, selling the hell out of it and getting your advocacy, both we had regional advocacy, we had national advocacy, State advocacy uh, and a variety of others pushing that message of unity, and it worked. Well, yeah.
0: Thank you for ending on that great uh, mm-hmm. uh, po- possible um, uh, ways of a collaboration. But the AB movement does embrace a diversity of tactics. Uh, so, <laughs> if if you're not the collaborative type, we have work for you. Don't don't worry. Um, so, I would just like to again thank uh, uh, th- thank you for coming, the, the audience for your great questions thank you to these excellent panelists i'd like to give them like one last round of applause